This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanen, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 93, and I am interviewing Jennifer Rowland about the difference between eating disorders and disordered eating, how weight stigma creates issues within eating disorder recovery and within our healthcare system, and our thoughts on eating disorder before and after pictures. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this podcast at summerinandin.com forward slash 93. That's 93. Before we begin, I just want to remind you that if you haven't already done so, you can be an awesome person by leaving a review for this podcast on iTunes, like this one from Anti-Skunk. By the way, I love people's usernames. It's one of my favorite things to try and figure out why they picked the name that they picked, (laughs) and in this case, Anti-Skunk. I've got a few different stories going on, so I'm curious to know why you picked that name. But in any event, this was the review left by Anti-Skunk. Dieting and body hate have always been a part of my life. I'm so relieved to know there is another better way to live. This takes practice and time, but already I feel more happy in my skin than I ever have. Thank you, Summer. Thank you so much. That means the world to me. I'm so grateful for all of your reviews and anytime you share information about an episode or tag me in your Instagram posts or stories. I read all of them and it just makes me feel really good about the time that I spend (laughs) putting this podcast together. So you can do that by heading to iTunes and searching for Fearless Rebel Radio, then click ratings and reviews and click to leave a review or give it a rating. And lastly, I just want to remind you that you can get the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. You can find that as well at thebodyimagecoach.com in case you don't know how to spell in and in. <laughs> Today's guest is Jennifer Rollin. Jennifer Rollin, M-S-W-L-C-S-W-C. By the way, I don't know if I'm supposed to actually say Masters of Social Work or Licensed Clinical Social Worker <laughs> or whether I'm supposed to read the letters, but okay, I just did both. Is a psychotherapist in private practice in Rockville, Maryland, eating disorder and body image specialist and expert writer and speaker. She is passionate about helping people to find freedom from eating disorders and body hatred. Jennifer has completed certificates in CBTE for eating disorders, dialectical behavioral therapy, and is a certified intuitive eating counselor. She is a member of the Junior Board of Directors for the National Eating Disorders Association, and her articles have reached thousands of people through various print and online media. She offers eating disorder therapy in Rockville, Maryland, and eating disorder recovery coaching to people worldwide. You can find her at her website, jenniferrollin.com, which I will link to in the show notes. This is a great show. I am really excited to have someone with a very specific expertise on eating disorders here to talk about it. So I think you're going to learn a lot. Let's get started. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here too. Like I said, offline, you're one of those people that I've been 
quote unquote friends with on Facebook for <laughs> quite a while. And, you know, I've seen your work on in the Huffington Post and that you share just on uh, through your social media. And I've always thought, who is this? And I need to I need to speak with her and, <laughs> and then not reached out for a while because well, you actually initiated this connection. But um, because of sometimes I'm an introvert that way. But uh, anyways, I'm, I'm so happy to finally get to talk to you as a human. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm so excited <laughs> to connect with you. I feel like our kind of philosophies are very much in alignment. So yes, we run in the same circles too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Hayes community. Exactly. So I'd love you to start out by telling our listeners how how you got into this line of work. Why are you so passionate about health at every size and helping women with um, or people I should say with eating disorders, mm-hmm. and eating disorder recovery? Yeah, so I wasn't initially as interested. I was always interested in kind of psychology. I knew I wanted to help people when I was growing up. And so, you know, after I graduated college, I decided to go back to school to study clinical social work with a focus in mental health. And I think kind of over the course of my life, you know, I went through my own body image issues. And I think kind of, you know, going through my own healing process in regards to that, And also just working with clients, you know, early on in my career, um, specifically who struggled with eating disorders, I really kind of started to dive deeper into health at every size um, and eating disorder recovery. And I just felt like there were so many important things that weren't, I guess I felt like the two worlds didn't always fit together in terms of the eating disorder recovery movement and the health at every size community. So I really developed kind of a passion in integrating the two. Mm, Cool. So can you elaborate a little bit more on where the gaps in terms of what you saw happening in the eating disorder movement versus what you saw happening within health at every size and how like you thought you could kind of merge those two? Yeah, Definitely. So I think, you know, initially, I was very interested in treating clients with eating disorders. You know, one of the first clients that I worked with in my second year practicum had binge eating disorder, and I was able to really help her in her recovery journey. And so, you know, through that, I really started diving in and getting more immersed in the eating disorder treatment community. And I guess, you know, initially, I didn't know anything about health at every size at that time. So I kind of took everything at face value. I didn't question, you know, some of the things I heard my colleagues and other professionals say. And then I think as I was kind of healing my own body image issues, I started, I honestly, I don't know, I think it might have been through Facebook, but somehow I stumbled into the health at every size community And I started reading all of Dr. Linda Bacon's work. I ended up hearing her talk at the Run Through Conference um, a few years back. And I think the more I educated myself on Hayes principles, the more I realized there was this disconnect where professionals in the eating disorder treatment space were using a lot of fat phobic um, messaging to their clients. Mm. And this just like struck me as so wrong. I think because I hold eating disorder treatment professionals to a higher standard than, you know, maybe professionals who don't have knowledge of, you know, body image concerns and eating disorders. And I think, yeah, just the more I got immersed in both those movements, particularly in the Hayes movement, I just started to notice how there was this like weight 
stigma and fat phobia within the recovery community that was really, in my opinion, harming people's ability to fully recover. So what are some of the things that you noticed when you when you noticed weight stigma happening within the eating disorder recovery community? Yeah. So I actually, I told this story in the Facebook group, but I got into a heated debate. I'm not going to call it an argument because it was really more of a debate with a local eating disorder therapist who, when I mentioned health at every size, we were talking about a book she was writing on weight loss. Um, and her whole specialty is eating disorders. And so I expressed concern about that and talked about health at every size. And she said, you know, that I don't believe in that, like obesity kills people. And, you know, so that's what prompted me to start the Hayes Professionals Facebook group. But I think specifically, so specific examples would be I've had clients whose dietitians have shared with them, you know, don't worry, I'm not going to let you get fat, like clients in recovery from anorexia, Mm. for instance, or, you know, my goal isn't for my patients to become obese. So like, if something happens, I'll tweak your meal plan if you gain weight or therapists who promise their clients that they're not going to go above a certain weight. Wow. Yeah. So those are just a few examples. But I mean, I had one very recently, too, um, with a client as well. And yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go into details due to confidentiality, but it was related to a residential treatment center where they were concerned about the client being above what they had determined was her ideal body weight. And she was there for recovery from a restrictive eating disorder, specifically anorexia. Um, yeah. 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 Like, how do you even know? Like, how are you supposed to, <laughs> how are you supposed to know what a client's ideal weight is? Is that like, I suppose they use that in calculating, you know, food requirements, but wow, that seems rather limiting. And yeah, like it's putting that limit on the individual. Yeah. And it's, you know, in my view, it's obviously, you know, they weren't sharing that with the patient. But I think when professionals make these kind of statements, they're really colluding with the eating disorder in kind of expressing that fat is something that we should fear. Mm -hmm. um, And that it's okay to gain weight, but not beyond a certain point. Yeah. And then weight stigma as well, I've heard shows up in eating disorder recovery in that just the the kind of appearance, like if you're not thin enough, then you're not considered sick enough. Have you noticed that as well? Yeah, that's another thing that's really concerning. And I've written a lot about this topic, because we know that eating disorders are, you know, the mental illness with the highest mortality rate. And they can have serious, you know, physical and mental complications. And a lot of people are denied life-saving treatment by their insurance providers because their BMI is not low enough, according to the insurance provider. So that's one example, you know, and that's truly for the medical side. But there's also people like you were saying who, you know, tell me, you know, I'm really struggling. Like they have all the symptoms of an eating disorder, you know, maybe all the symptoms of anorexia. But in their mind, they're not sick enough because they're at a normal weight or because they don't look emaciated or because they're, quote unquote, overweight. And so I think this view that like people with eating disorders all look a certain way, they're all young, um, Caucasian, emaciated females, I think that really detracts people from seeking help. Yeah, that's, um, it's, that's, it's so discriminatory too. But that's, I mean, I feel like that was just the way that people have perceived it for, for so long. And I can't imagine the number of individuals who haven't gotten help or who have just thought they were like dieting, but really they were engaging in with an eating disorder. Yeah. 
No, definitely. Um, it's so pervasive. So that actually, I would, I'm kind of curious to loop background because of your expertise on this, but what is the difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating? Like, can you explain the difference between the two? Sure. So yeah, I've had, I've talked with people about how pervasive disordered eating is in our culture. And that's kind of begged some people to ask the question, you know, I've even had clients ask you recently, like, does everyone struggle with an eating disorder? Like I heard someone say that, is that actually true? Like, do all women struggle? And no, I don't think that's the case. So, you know, I think that disordered eating can certainly be very painful. Um, and I definitely think that even if it is not a full-fledged eating disorder, people deserve to seek treatment and help. Mm -hmm. Um, cause we know that disordered eating, which, you know, in my mind is, any kind of food rules, restriction, sense of guilt or shame around food, any kind of compensatory behaviors, that could all fall under the category of disordered eating. However, I think that while there are obviously commonalities, an eating disorder is different in the sense of, you know, someone struggling with an eating disorder, often it starts to really impair their functioning and take over their whole life. So whereas someone with disordered eating, you know, maybe they live with this kind of low grade, you know, unhelpful thoughts around food, maybe some maladaptive behaviors with food, but it's not impacting their life too much. Or if it is, you know, it's not rising to the level of an eating disorder where, you know, we'll often see for people struggling with eating disorders, their relationships really start to suffer, they become isolated, you know, my clients share with me that like 80 to 90% of their day is spent thinking about food in their body. And I think the other point that's important to highlight is that eating disorders are a mental illness. So, you know, there's a genetic component and there's also psychological factors as well, but it's really a brain-based illness. So it's not just simply somebody being like, I want to go on a diet. I want to try to be thin. It's like, that's the way that the symptoms manifest, but it's not that somebody is vain or that someone's like making a choice. It really is like a genetic predisposition that's then triggered by environmental stressors. Yeah. Do you, do you think that eating disorders would exist in the absence of diet culture? That's a good question. I think that they, again, it's really hard to know. I certainly don't think that diet cultures, diet culture alone causes eating disorders. Like I think that if that was the case, everyone would have an eating disorder because we're all exposed to toxic diet culture messaging. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely think there's that underlying gene. I think diet culture certainly exacerbates it, though, and can be the trigger because like we know one in four people who diet go on to develop an eating disorder. Oh, wow. Um, Is that right? I didn't realize yeah, that was the stat. Mm -hmm. But I certainly don't think, again, that diets in and of themselves cause it. I think they certainly can trigger it. Because again, we know, you know, just for example, for someone with the gene or the genetic predisposition for anorexia and the temperament, you know, energy restriction or calorie restriction in and of itself could trigger the illness. Mm -hmm. um, and so a diet is often restrictive. That's kind of the definition. So that I think makes a lot of sense. But I think another big point about diet culture is it really harms people trying to recover because they're constantly being told messages that align with their eating disorder self. Right. I'm actually really one thing I, I wonder about, and I'm interested to know your perspective on this, is when I've heard people talk about I've, when I've heard people who have had an eating disorder talk about their eating disorder, they, they refer to it as like my eating disorder mm -hmm. versus an eating disorder or the 
eating disorder. And that whole like personalization of it, is that helpful or harmful? Like what's your perspective on that? Well, I think it depends on the person. I would say generally, I don't lean towards saying my eating disorder because I do think that people can become overly identified where the eating disorder really becomes their whole identity and then it's hard for them to give that up. So, but I do like, you know, having the distinction of the healthy self and I call it the eating disorder self. So rather, I mean, it also kind of bothers me when people say the anorexic, like Mm -hmm. I wouldn't respond to my, I wouldn't, I'm taught to use person first language when talking about clients. So I also find it very, I think, stigmatizing because you wouldn't say like the, I don't know, like the depressive um, or something like that. Depressive or I'm thinking about like, I guess people say, do people say the the diabetic? Because I feel like that would sound weird too. I was thinking of like medical illnesses yeah, or even just like the cancer patient. Like I know people say that, but mm-hmm. again, I think it takes away the person's like humanness. Right. Yeah. I've always just been kind of wondered about that because I've just heard people kind of, or I've seen that in different Facebook groups. And mm-hmm. I, I personally feel like that would be problematic because of the personal identification with it versus, you know, kind of seeing it as just something that's happening versus like something that is you. Yeah. And I think part of it is that often eating disorders, specifically um, restrictive eating disorders, can be very egocentric, which I talk about with clients a lot. Whereas, so first, I think when I was thinking about that point, it's kind of like they almost want to identify with it more than if it was another illness, which might be why they say my eating disorder. Mm. Um, because, yeah, I think that you know, thinness is obviously very praised in our culture and not everyone with an eating disorder is thin, but for individuals whose eating disorder has caused weight loss, I think that it does very much fit in alignment with what is culturally sanctioned and thus people, and also, you know, there are these false associations about control and all these myths, right, around people, particularly with anorexia and restrictive eating disorders. So I think people are quicker sometimes to claim that identity than to say like, the depressive, like Mm -hmm. you said, because that's associated in our culture. Again, these are all like myths. Obviously, both of these things are mental illnesses that no one chooses. But I think depression, when somebody envisions a depressed person, they associate that maybe with like, unmotivated, lazy. Again, I don't think anyone would say that. But I think that the The behaviors that yeah, the stigma and the symptoms of depression are often less egocentric mm-hmm. and less desirable culturally, if that makes sense. Right. Well, I mean, eating disorder behavior is glorified and exactly. and, and praised and, you know, and celebrated in, in a lot of ways in our, yeah. in our society. And I think kind of circling back to weight stigma, the thing that's especially problematic is that often eating disorder behaviors and people in larger bodies are even more glorified. Whereas people are not even seen as sick. They're seen as like success stories, Mm -hmm. you know, when they're doing the same behavior that somebody else in a thin body is sent to the hospital for their praise and said that they're so disciplined. Right. Or they're actually prescribed that, you know, I know, I know there's, uh, you know, Dr. Bernstein's program, which I don't know, do you guys have that in America or is that a Canadian thing? Anyways, it's we like, might, but yeah. I haven't heard of it. It's like medically supervised weight loss, and I believe it's like an uh, okay, so like eight hundred calorie kind of diet. Like it's it's crazy, and then you get these injections to kind of give you 
nutrients so that you're still surviving. Um, that is insane. It's an eating disorder, right? Like it's yeah. basically giving people, here you go, here's an eating disorder protocol that you're going to follow. No wonder it's, it's been in business forever and makes tons of money because it doesn't work and probably <laughs> really damages people ha- people's health. So I'm not laughing about that. I'm just laughing at kind of the the ridiculousness of of, you know, the extremes that we go to and how we're so quick to I think call out what we perceive as unhealthy when someone's in a larger body and yet like we want them to engage in unhealthy behaviors to not be in a larger body. Like it's just, it, it, you know, the discrimination is just horrible. Yeah, no, absolutely. Again, it's the thought that to be in a larger body is seen by our culture as the worst thing in the world. To your point that they think it's okay to prescribe what is an eating disorder in thin people to people in larger bodies and call that, you know, taking care of their health. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it just speaks to, I think, the larger discrimination, which honestly, I mean, it, it breaks my heart seeing clients who face that kind of discrimination, both from people in their social circles and from the medical professionals that they're relying on for care. Well, and uh, that's why I was so appreciative when you started the health at every size professionals group, because it at least gave me hope that there's a lot of people trying to change the way that healthcare is being provided. And, try to give fair treatment to all bodies. So I really appreciate you starting that because I think in order to for us to help other people, we need to have a network mm-hmm. and we need to know, okay, there's somebody in this country or there's somebody in this state who can help with that or who might know of somebody else. Because I think that one of the biggest problems now is there's a lot more people who are familiar with health at every size, but they can't find providers who are familiar with health at every size. And yeah. so they're still experiencing unfair, unfair treatment. Absolutely. And yeah, even though I started the group, like I did not anticipate it taking off and becoming what it's become. And it definitely gives me hope too, just to be able to, I think, feel that sense of community within um, the health at every size professionals. I also think, like I was just thinking about clients and I think the same principle is so important for them as they're getting immersed into health at every size and eating disorder recovery and body acceptance. I mean, I talk about this with people a lot, really working to counter condition yourself to the messaging that they're getting. I think that otherwise it can feel very isolating. So I think it's important for them. And I wish that there were more resources for clients as well, you know, in the online space. And I know that there are some different Facebook groups that have been started, which are awesome. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely tough. But like you said, health at every size is gaining, I think with podcasts like yours, um, and articles that people are writing, it's definitely gaining a lot more prominence, which Mm -hmm. is awesome. And so what do you think needs to happen within eating disorder recovery, the system Mm -hmm. to improve the way that people are treated and the way that the extent to which people recover? Yeah, I think, well, the first step is kind of awareness. So I think we can't change anything till specifically, I think on an individual level, starting with providers, really being willing to do an inventory of their own beliefs and attitudes towards people in different body sizes, like 
for instance, asking yourself, when I see a client in a larger body who has an eating disorder, do I automatically assume that they struggle with binging? You know, when I see a client in a smaller body, do I automatically assume they struggle with restriction? And so, or do I have any judgment about my clients based on their body type? And then also having them look at their own beliefs about their own bodies. And if they have struggles with their own body image, I think doing and any like internalized fat phobia, doing some work, you know, personally, whether it's going to therapy, educating themselves. So I think that's the first step is kind of, you know, cultivating an awareness of any weight bias attitudes that you have on an individual level. Um, and I think also applying that to eating disorder treatment centers. So, I mean, are we doing things at our eating disorder treatment center where we're calculating patients' ideal body weight? Like, how can we really determine that? Mm -hmm. um, so are we doing that? Are we sending other implicit messages? I have a couple of upcoming presentations where I'm talking about this topic. So um, I was actually just working on one today talking about old-fashioned, which I think some places probably still do this, but treatments for people specifically with anorexia typically, where one of the interventions for body image was to, you know, I've seen videos on this, to have clients draw, you know, their body. And then what they would do is come around and trace their body, like have the client lay down. Yes. And then they would point out the difference. And so on the surface, this is a great intervention, like it's showing them there's a distortion. But when you really dig in deeper, what are we really telling the client? We're reassuring them that they're not large. And right. again, so that's really problematic. And I don't think it's helpful. You know, I think that, yeah, so looking at, again, on an individual level, then on a systematic level and, you know, in the residential treatment centers, and also looking at what interventions are we using with clients and are they reinforcing weight stigma and fat phobia? So I think that would be important as well. Um, and obviously, you know, the education piece too. So, you know, I think it's important that providers who do have a knowledge of health at every size are educating within the eating disorder recovery community. Um, but again, I think that the community as a whole is going to have to be really open to like doing this work and looking at their own biases, which can be uncomfortable for people. But I guess my hope is that most providers are in this field because they really care and want to help people. And we, when we look at recovery rates for eating disorders, the statistics are pretty dismal. Um, and a lot of these treatment centers actually have pretty grim statistics. So I think, you know, it really does show that there are some things that maybe need to be changed within the treatment community. Yeah, it sounds like we've got a, a little bit of work to do there. Why, why? I know that that's one of the components. What are the other reasons mm -hmm. why the statistics are so grim? Well, and I don't want to paint like a not cheery picture because, you know, I've seen people make full recoveries that I've worked with. And, you know, I know that full recovery is possible. Yes. It's just, I think, so I want to highlight that. Like, it's not hopeless, but I definitely think, so obviously there are statistics that very few people with eating disorders actually get treatment, which we know. And then I think, you know, there's a lot of problems both with insurance coverage. So people mm -hmm. going to residential treatment centers or maybe seeing a therapist, but insurance cuts out after like 30 days, Oh wow! Um, you know, at the treatment center and there are thousands and thousands of dollars. They're exorbitantly expensive. So I think it's not realistic to think someone's going to heal from years of, you know, an eating disorder in 30 days and then just be stepped down to once a week treatment. So yeah, I definitely think insurance plays a big factor 
I think also eating disorders are, you know, pretty misunderstood. And so if someone's not seeing a specialist, it makes sense that recovery rates are not going to be as high because again, it's something you really want to have specialized knowledge about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also the cultural climate, like we talked about, you know, it makes it really hard for people. And, you know, when diet culture is so insidious, I think, you know, you also see a lot of people who are in recovery, but maybe there's still some lingering eating disorder thoughts or things that they're not realizing are still kind of being in their eating disorder because they're so culturally sanctioned. So, you know, it's not uncommon to see people flip from maybe anorexia to then exercise compulsion and clean eating under the guise of health. Yes, yes. Um, And I think that's probably actually another reason why um, recovery rates are not as high is because when you think about recovery from addiction or alcoholism, it's pretty clear cut, like what is what it means to be in recovery versus Mm -hmm. not. So it means I haven't had a drink. But for eating disorder recovery, there can be a lot of gray. And again, a lot of things that are so culturally sanctioned and even encouraged by people who do not know, you know, about eating disorders. So somebody becoming a vegetarian in recovery, or again, like fitness obsessed, or, you know, all of these other kind of more orthorexic, more subtle eating disorder behaviors. Um, And so I think it's really important for people to define, and I do this with clients, like what does recovery look like for me in specific? Like what are behaviors that would indicate a relapse and what are behaviors that indicate I'm strong in my recovery? Because again, it's so unique to each person. Yes. And I think, like you said, the the whole health culture aspect of it makes it so much harder because it's, again, become normalized. Like it's like, oh, okay, no, but I'm just following, you know, this protocol. Like I'm, oh, I'm just paleo or I'm just vegetarian, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm not yeah. engaging with an eating disorder, but the same, the same behaviors still exist around food, you know, whether as it relates to just the fear and the guilt and the judgment. And, you know, I think that's both with disordered eating and eating disorders. So yeah, it's, it's super problematic where people go from, well, I'm just going to try and work on getting strong now. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. concerned about being, being smaller. I want to be stronger, but it's the same compulsion. Yeah, absolutely. And then they'll be seeing a personal trainer that puts them on some meal plan that's restrictive. And it's, yeah, it's very similar. It's kind of almost an eating disorder in disguise. Mm -hmm, Um, Totally. Because we think about diets in disguise. So I was just thinking it, it is still the same manifestation. It's just a different set of symptoms. Um, and I think that's another kind of common misconception around eating disorders. You know, one thing I hear is that I think there are people who believe that people with eating disorders just don't eat. You know, like specifically people with anorexia are not eating. Or, yeah, I think they're just, there are a lot of misconceptions around what that looks like. And I think everyone's eating disorder, while there are commonalities that I see, it can come up in unique ways. Mm-hmm. And so what we really look for is kind of what you were referencing, like somebody who has that level of rigidity and a sense of like guilt and shame around certain rules being broken. Those are some key things that we look for. But I also think there's such a common element of people with eating disorders not thinking that they're sick. And that also plays into people's ability because I think many people genuinely don't believe that they've traded one 
you know, symptom manifestation for another, because again, they're able to kind of write it off as being, you know, something that's healthy. And I think that can be very dangerous as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to know what you think individuals can do to advocate for themselves. So we've talked about this at, mm-hmm. at more of like an institutional level, but if there's somebody listening here who is perhaps, you know, struggling to find someone to support them, whether it's a health likely most likely like a healthcare practitioner or they know somebody who is is struggling to get the support they need, what what are some things that like an individual can do? Mhm. You mean to like connect them to treatment. And yeah, support. like if they feel like if they're hearing this and they're thinking, "Wow, I think I, you know, I need support or I need help, yeah. but I can't get it or my doctor thinks tells me, you know, I'm not thin enough to have a real problem." Yeah. Like what are some yeah, what are some things that people can do? Sure. I mean, first off, I'll say that like often if you're suspecting in your head that something is wrong and that you're struggling, you likely are. Um and just because a doctor or somebody else makes like an ill-informed comment or because you're not visibly emaciated or you think your weight is not low enough or whatever it is, like if you are struggling with like constant thoughts about food in your body, feelings of guilt and shame, some of these rigidity, then you definitely deserve to seek treatment. And I think kind of the first step would be looking for local providers in your area. So I would start with a therapist and really trying to find one who specializes in eating disorders and disordered eating. And if you can help at every size, if that's possible, and also looking for a registered dietitian who is an eating disorder specialist. And then the other thing I would say about that is, you know, if you are able to identify those people, I would really urge you to feel empowered to call them and ask them questions about their approach, like specifics. So, you know, are you knowledgeable about health at every size? And tell me about like your experience treating eating disorders. So it's not just like they've checked the box on psychology today for like 20 specialties. Mm. And then I think also advocating for yourself in the like the providers that you are seeing. So, you know, if you're seeing a doctor, I share with my clients because I encourage all of them to not be weighing themselves you know, if they're going to a doctor, I've had clients share with me, like, it's so traumatic, I get weighed. And I said, you know, you can ask for a blind weight, or you can ask to not be weighed at all. And that's 100% within your right. So I think also knowing that, like, if a doctor is shaming you or denying that the seriousness of your illness, then I would encourage you to find somebody else. And yeah, also, while you're there, if there are things that are super triggering to you, like you can ask, like, hey, you know, I would really like for my weight not to be discussed at this appointment. And, you know, I think a good medical professional will hopefully respect that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's so hard to, why is that so hard to do, I think? It's just, um, like, sometimes I never want to get fluoride at the dentist. And um, (laughs) and I'm like, I'm always like, no. (laughs) Like, I don't know why I feel like I have to. It's the same thing with being weighed. I don't know why, why that's a thing that we do to ourselves. Like, why we have such trouble just saying no, I'm not okay with that. Or I don't need, um, we're not going to do that today. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's human nature. I think a lot of it is just kind of the whole, you know, patriarchal society of just kind of being like obeying, you know, what we're supposed totally. to do. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think no. it, it, it is really hard for people. So I, I don't want people to think that that's just easy, but that, you know, 
advocating for yourself by saying, I don't want to be weighed, or I don't want to see my number is is so important. You know, your health and your body are are your your business. And you you get that choice. Yeah. And I think you're so right. And you're definitely not alone in that. Because like, we're taught to, you know, listen to authority figures, especially medical providers, and that doctors know everything. But you know, most doctors get almost no training in eating disorders, if at all. Mm -hmm. So I think it's reminding yourself of that. And also most doctors get little to no training in nutrition. So if they're trying to give you dietary advice, um, like thinking back actually to a doctor I saw, this must've been like a year ago, I saw a new doctor and she asked me about my diet and you know, we were talking about eating out and, you know, I said, I eat out pretty regularly. And she said, like, you shouldn't be eating out. They put bad things in the food. Like you need to limit that. (laughs) Wow. She literally said that to me. Um, and I just, I was actually really angry because I'm like, can you imagine if she said that to someone in the throes of an eating disorder or diet mentality? Yeah. And so it actually really bothered me. And of course I didn't, I didn't take her opinion seriously, but I think, yeah, it's knowing that, you do deserve to set those boundaries and those limits and to be protective of your recovery and of your health. So yeah, sharing like, Hey, I really don't want to talk about nutrition today, or I really would prefer my weight not to be commented on. And again, like you said, I think setting those boundaries, whether it's with medical providers or, you know, friends and family who are commenting on your body, it's tough because I think we all want to also, we want to be liked. Yes. Um, We want to not make people mad. We want to be people pleasers, but ultimately it's like, is it really worth your mental health and like a possible trigger for you? Or even if it's not to that level, is it worth, you know, ruining an hour of your day, like where you're going to be having these unhelpful thoughts. And I think it can feel really empowering to set boundaries. And it's something that takes practice. I think the more you do it, the more comfortable it can get over time. Yes. I love I love how excited my clients are or people in my Facebook group are when they have done that. Like when they, you know, they'll report back or they'll share in the group. Yeah. They'll say, I went to my doctor and I said I wasn't going to be weighed and I stood up for myself and they're so they just feel so empowered by it. So, you know, it's certainly worth that initial discomfort to do it. You're always going to feel better to to stand up for yourself and it gives you the, you know, a little bit more strength and resiliency to do it again next time and maybe stand up to something even bigger. So it always starts with baby steps. And I think that that's, that's a really good place to do it is just by advocating yourself in that kind of an environment. Totally. And I also, I like to think of it too, as you might be planting a seed for that provider as well. Um, So not that you owe them an explanation, but you know, if a provider asks, and as you can probably tell, I tend to be pretty opinionated. So, you know, I will obviously like if I walk into a doctor's office and this has happened to me before too, and I've seen signs for like weight loss or something, like I will speak to the owner and tell them, but like, you don't have to be at that level of comfort, but even just sharing like, Hey, you know, I'd like to get a blind weight and you know, you don't have to, again, you don't need to give them any explanation, but like, if you felt comfortable, you could share like, you know, I find, you know, I, I healed, you know, body image issues. And I find it's, it can be really unhelpful for me to be focused on that number. Or, you know, I find that focusing on that number, takes away from my health and happiness, like, or whatever you want to share. I think, again, it's planting the seed because they're so used to weighing people in that model. They don't even question it. But if you like have a frank conversation with the person who's weighing you, they might 
you know, be more receptive to the next person who asked to be blind weighed, mm-hmm. or they might think about their practices. So again, you're really planting the seed for other people as well, when you are able to stand up for yourself. Yeah, that's a really helpful way to think about it. I think it's always easier to do something with the like in in the name of service for others. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm really interested to know your perspective on before and after eating disorder recovery photos. I have such a perspective on this. Do share. I'm, yeah, so, I'm interested. And I'm interested to hear yours as well. I have a feeling it'll be in alignment with mine, but who knows? So I think they come from a really good place. I want to say that first. Like, I definitely think often people who are posting them are trying to be helpful to other people. And, you know, their eating disorder voice is probably, or for some people might be feeling some shame about their recovered body. So it probably is vulnerable for them, for some people to post that. I do, however, think that the nature of the before after pictures is very problematic um, within the recovery community. I think so for a few reasons. Eating disorders are very competitive illnesses. So if you see somebody who appears very, very emaciated, it reinforces the notion that like, I'm not sick enough to need treatment, or that I'm not really struggling. Um, It also could trigger someone to want to, again, like emulate that before picture, because they could activate, you know, their eating disorder voice to say, like, you should look like that. And so I think that's problematic in terms of the social comparison. I also I think it misses the point as well. Because when you really think about it, like, Yes, for some people, their body changes in recovery. For some people, it doesn't. For some people, it stays the same. But for some people, there are body changes. But ultimately, I think that takes us away from like the actual important changes that have happened, which I think often people will put in the comments. But the visual, again, it's very distracting. And I think the reality of recovery is kind of like getting your life back and figuring out what like your passions and interests are outside of food in your body Yes, and like truly connecting with people and like laughing and not being a shell of a person, you know, and like meaning it and yeah, like caring about things and feeling all your feelings and traveling and doing all of these things. And I think when we focus on body changes, it simplifies what is actually such a transformative process. And lastly, when we think about other mental illnesses, you don't see people posting before and after depression pictures. Mm. So, I mean, hardly, you really don't. So maybe there's like one or two articles I've seen floating around, but it's not that that's a common practice. Like this was me in bed depressed. This is me fine. And so it perpetuates the idea that eating disorders are these physical illnesses, which again, I think is part of the huge problem when it comes to recovery and treatment, which is that yes, they can have serious physical implications, but eating disorders are the only mental illness where we judge people's level of sickness by the way that they look or their level of suffering. We don't judge how depressed somebody is, you know, typically by their appearance. Again, like maybe there are subtle cues you might pick up on, but it's more the thoughts that we're looking at, the behaviors. And so I think it, again, perpetuates the myth that eating disorders are these physical illnesses based on vanity and that for people who are not struggling and haven't been there or haven't known someone or worked with someone who's struggling, that like it's as simple as they change their body or gain weight and they're fine. Yeah. So yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts. I know that was a lot. But. No, no. I actually hadn't formulated a lot of a lot of articulate thoughts around it because like I 
I don't work specifically with eating disorders. Like some of the some of the people some of the people I work with have done recovery and like they've been recovered for a while, but they still have you know body image stuff that's mm-hmm. that's popping up, or you know maybe just a little bit of still a little bit of guilt and judgment around food. So, you know, I specifically don't because I know that that's not my my area of yeah. Uh, that's not within my realm of practice. So I don't know. Like I'm not as super educated on the intricacies of, of the disease or the disorder, which is why mm-hmm. I'm asking you so many questions, if you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, no, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, 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 I, I wholeheartedly agree with you though. Like, I think you, I think you said it so well and I, and I agree with every single point that you made. I think another component of it is just this idea that you receive praise around your body changing and yeah, around recovery, like to, okay, how can I articulate this better? I think you have to, you have to recover for yourself, not in order to gain praise or popularity via a social media platform. And I don't know if that's the intention of individuals. That may just be kind of perhaps a side effect that happens. Mm-hmm. But I I know the way that you know, human behavior works. And, (laughs) and I know that, you know, what's heavily intertwined with eating disorder behaviors or disordered eating behaviors is, you know, a lack of a lack of self worth and perfectionism. And both of those things love (laughs) praise. So to, you know, I think that I, you know, the, there's, there's also just the problem of the way that that garners so much praise and what that might do for, for an individual thinking, well, maybe I'll start a social media thing and like, I'll start posting this stuff about myself. And then they kind of become hooked on the praise of that instead of the praise they were getting when they were, you know, so super disciplined with their food or their, the way that their body looked. So I suppose to add to, you know, what you said, I think Mm -hmm. that that's a, that's a component that I feel uncomfortable with as well. But I I wholeheartedly agree with your points. And I can see why that's damaging. And I think, especially the part about, you know, talking about just your life now, and like how you're able to live it outside of just the way your body looks is something that needs to be brought into the conversation a lot more. Yeah, no, and I think you raise a great point in the sense of trading one form of maybe validation for another. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think you can become like you can turn that drive into something else that's harmful and channel it, obviously, like so some people could become very addicted to finding their identity through workaholism, or like you said, like social media followers in an unhealthy way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that from my perception, I really genuinely think most people posting the before after recovery pictures, I do think it comes from a good place. And typically what I see is I think they want to like, not only provide themselves some reassurance that like everything's okay, I'm doing well, but also I do think a lot of them really want to help other people oh, in yeah. recovery. No doubt. Spread, no doubt. Yeah. And spread that like hope. And so I actually do, again, depending on their stage of recovery, but I think for people who are pretty strong in their recovery, I definitely encourage them, some of my clients to do advocacy work. I think that it really strengthens the healthy self. Like if that's an interest for them, whether it's writing or speaking, I think that can be super powerful because again, it 
puts meaning in their suffering, which we know is really powerful yes, for people. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I'm super into Viktor Frankl's work and acceptance and commitment therapy and all of these things that really look at values and life meaning. Mm, um, I love that stuff. You're speaking my language. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I think that's so important. And I think the advocacy work helps people as one you know, outlet to get there. But yeah, I think there's so many other ways that people can advocate for recovery and inspire others without posting the before after picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm I'm so glad that I asked you that question. I hadn't really, I thought about it just kind of midway through. I was like, oh, I want to ask you about that. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, there we go. Time is up, but... (laughs) For now. I swear I could talk to you all day. I know. We didn't even get to like half of the other topics yes. that we were going to like, oh, talk about. Oh, now I want to talk about Victor Frankl and values and meaning. Yes. <laughs> Gosh. Well, another time. Yes. Another time for sure. I, I, I love talking about stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's like my, what I do as a coach with people. So that's, that's awesome. That's, that's kind of like my, my area of passion as well. But so yeah, we'll have to have you back on to, 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 to open up that conversation a little bit more. But I, I really appreciate you taking the time today and sharing all this stuff. It's been super, super helpful and you're doing really good work out there. So actually, I don't want to say goodbye to you yet. Where can people find more of you? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, first off, thank you. And I so love and appreciate the work you're doing in this world as well. Thank you. Yeah. So the easiest way to connect with me is just via my website. It's www.jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, Roland, R as in rock, O-L-L-I-N.com. And you can email me or call me through there. Great. That's great. And do you work with people remotely at all? Or is it all uh, is it all like in in person? Yeah, so I have a therapy practice in Rockville, Maryland. And then I see clients virtually as well worldwide um, for eating disorder recovery coaching, which is an added support to therapy. Oh, fantastic. Okay, awesome. Good. I'm gonna link to that in the show notes. And thank you again so much for being here. It's been awesome. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Rock on. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff in that episode. I hope that you learned a lot because I did. And it was really great to hear Jennifer talk about all of those very important things. You can find all the links that she referenced, weren't, which weren't a ton, but that's okay, at summerinandin.com forward slash 93. But that's where you can find the link to connect more with Jennifer and read her work. And if you want to work with her, then obviously go to her site as well. Thank you again so much for listening. I will see you guys next week. Rock on! Rock on!